Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good things that you have in store for us today. Uh, Thank you for the grace that you've given us to be here today. You have uh, you've given us safety on our way here. Uh, You've given us food to eat and water to drink. You've given us vehicles. You've given us uh, good air to breathe, uh, sunshine. Uh, So many things that you have already given us today. And we ask that you would help us, though, to to know in our hearts that in this worship service, you plan to give us something very special. God, when we gather together to sing to you, to commune with you, to worship you, we are also gathered together to receive from you. And we pray that you would give to us today the truth of your word. That you would impress your word deeply on our hearts. That that your truth would make more of an impression on us than the impression this world or our circumstances would leave on us. We pray that Amidst all the things that we're going to hear today and and this week um, from different people, from different books, from different personalities, from different positions, all the things that we're going to hear today, they're going to come to us as truth. We pray, though, that we would hear your truth ring uh, highly above all those other things we will hear and that your word and your truth would be the lens through which we would read and listen to everything else. God, if we are here today and we're distracted, we ask that your word would come with such force that it would break through all distractions, that your word would come so powerfully with the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be enslaved to the listening to your word, that you would speak so clearly and so boldly that it would undo anything wicked in us, And you would call us to love you and to serve you and to to honor you. So God, please, please make yourself known today. And may my friends who are here today, may they see you in all of your glory. May they experience your special presence here with us in this worship service. May they know that you are God and there is no other. I pray this for myself as well. That I would be, even as I speak, I would be convicted and compelled. And that you would lead me to be faithful until the end. And we give you praise this morning. And we give you glory. And we give you honor, our great God. And we do this in the name of, and for the sake of, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like, open up to Second Timothy Chapter 1, we'll get through hopefully the first seven verses today. We will finish up 2 Timothy by Christmas time. That's the plan. And then in January, we'll start Genesis. And we'll spend the entire year of 2013 looking at Genesis. For those of you who don't like change, it's going to be nice. You'll know what you're getting every week. No, no surprises. What we have here is the very last letter that, that Paul wrote. This is Paul's last letter. He chooses to write it to his dear friend Timothy. He is in prison while he writes this. He is in prison awaiting execution. He is set to be killed because he is a a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nero is unhappy with him and all others who are doing that, and so he has plans to execute him. And this is how Paul spends the last days of his life. He's probably in Mamertine prison, which we know was in Rome and was the main prison, which means he was most likely in a very small cell with stone walls with a very small hole in the ceiling. And from that small hole came light and air. And that is it for Paul. In this cell, we know that he is chained to the wall. He's fettered to the wall. 
It means that he has a chain attached to his body, and that chain is attached. He only has a certain amount of distance that he can get away from the wall. He's most likely cold. He's most likely malnourished. We know that he is alone. He's been deserted by everyone except for Luke. Luke is a man's best friend. He is, he is faithful here to the end. The author of the Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. He is with Paul still. But everyone else has deserted him, including a close friend named Demas. Paul says of him in chapter 4, verse 10 of this letter, that he left because he was in love with the present world. And if you are in love with the things of this world, spending your time with a guy chained up in prison, not going to happen. So here is Paul, and he is alone at the end of his life, knowing that everything is winding down, and soon his physical life is going to be snuffed out. He will be executed, and this is certain. Keep that in mind as you read this letter. Keep in mind Paul's condition and keep in mind his circumstance. When you read about Paul's joy and you read about his hope and you read about his peace, keep in mind that he is chained up in prison. For me, when I read Paul's letters, and especially this letter, but when I read Paul's letter, I am ashamed at my lack of joy, at my lack of hope, at my lack of peace. When I think about how susceptible I am to my circumstances, when I think about how easily I waver, when I think how simple it is to swing my mood, when I think how quickly I can crash, when I, when I know my own heart and I know how easily I fall into discouragement or depression or anger, when I think about my own life and I see Paul talk about his joy and his full joy and his consistent hope and peace, I am totally ashamed of myself. And to think that in this letter, when he's writing about this joy that he has and this hope that he has and this peace that he has, encouraging Timothy to have the same, when I consider that he's writing that while he is in a cold, dark, lonely prison cell awaiting execution, I go somewhere beyond shame. And so feel that as we're reading Paul's letter. It should help us to, to laugh at some circumstances in our life to take things more lightly in our life that we should, and to take other things more heavily. To think that he could live through that and have joy. What does that have to say about us? When we come close to cursing God in a traffic jam. When our waiter brings us the wrong food. Not enough ice in our latte. We didn't get the recognition that we had hoped and expected. You know how susceptible we are to these things. And here Paul writes, chained to a prison wall. And he is one of the most joyful men on the planet. First, the greeting in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Who's writing? Who's he writing to? What is his general intention with this letter? Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. First, Paul calls himself an apostle. Apostle was a special and specific office that existed in the first century church that has not existed since. Apostles were these few select men who knew Jesus, who were personally appointed by Jesus, 
who were given special power from Jesus to establish the church. The church was to be, starting in the first century and is still today and will be until Jesus comes back, the church is the vehicle through which God is proclaiming His truth, His gospel, His grace, His mercy through the church. The church is those people who have been saved and reconciled to God who have believed this gospel, whose lives have been transformed, who live completely differently and tell others why they live completely differently. It is nothing in us but by the grace of God. Like Paul says, I am what I am. That church, that vehicle, that institution started in the first century. And Jesus appointed a few select men, the apostles, to, if you will, get the ball rolling. And so you had the 11 disciples, not Judas, but you had the 11 remaining disciples and Matthias, whom they chose by the casting of lots after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And then you had one more apostle who was chosen, and it was Paul. Paul was the last one. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You remember the story. The way Paul was called to be an apostle was wild. He was not one of the original disciples of Jesus who was following Jesus around and hanging on his every word. Rather, from what we can gather, Paul at that time, while Jesus was gaining a following and ministering to his disciples, Paul, it was being trained to exterminate Christianity. And we know after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, this is exactly what Paul set out to do. He moved up the ranks. He got the letters from the right authorities. And we went from town to town imprisoning and overseeing the murder of Christians because his intention was to exterminate Christianity. And he believed that he was doing this out of faithfulness to the one true God because he didn't believe that Jesus was God. And then on the road to Damascus, where he's going, right, with his followers, like a bunch of bloodhounds, and they're headed from Damascus to sniff out Christians, to find them and to capture them and to have them killed. He's on his way to do that. And do you remember Jesus comes and meets with him on the road, blinds him, knocks him out, and says, Paul, what are you doing? And Paul says, what do you mean what I'm doing? I'm serving you, God. I'm following you, God. And you remember what God says? You're persecuting me. Who? And what does he learn on that road? That Jesus Christ is God. And so it's no wonder Paul goes from becoming a, a persecutor to a pastor. First 30 years of his life, Last 30 years of his life, very different. He goes from being a murderer of Christians to a missionary. His life is turned completely upside down. And so he's ministering as this apostle. He reminds Timothy, he reminds Timothy Church that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then he says this phrase, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. See that phrase? Promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. The gospel is the promise of life that is in Jesus Christ. The promise is if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will have eternal life. So he says, I am an apostle. And I am an apostle by the will of God and according to the gospel. Now, Timothy and Paul shared this. They were both called by God to ministry. They were both called by God to pastor. They were both called by God to shepherd his people. Neither Paul nor Timothy were self-appointed men. 
They didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll be a pastor. I think this sounds fun. I think this sounds interesting. No heavy lifting. At least not physically. Read my Bible. Read books. Play golf. Sounds nice. Paul makes it very clear. We are not self-appointed men. We have been called to this work by God. This is, I have heard from pastors who have pastored much longer than I have, this is the truth that is most sustaining when life and ministry become very difficult. It is the reality that they have been called by God. You understand it's true for your life too. Whatever you find yourself in today, it is by the will of God. And there may be a lot of things that have gotten you into the situation that you're in. You may have added to it. You may not have added to it. But one thing that you know is clear is whatever you find yourself in today, you are in that by the will of God. Now, initially, when we hear that, there are many questions that come up. We've dealt as a church with many of those questions. And there are knee-jerk emotions to be maybe upset and angry with the one who has us in this position. I mean, if everything's going well, and we're the happiest we've ever been, and I tell you that it is by the will of God that you are in the position you're in today, and we say, Amen, Pastor. Absolutely. Praise you and God. My life couldn't be better right now and you're right it is by the will of god he must be very happy with me right that's where that's where our mind goes he must be very happy with me if i were god i would treat myself the same way i i'm this promotion this money i mean everything is going well healthy of course i'm a good christian i deserve these great things i am here by the will of god now you come back in a year when all the money's gone and the job is gone and your health is a wreck And then you hear the same truth. That you are where you are by the will of God. Now, you may have different knee-jerk emotions. Well, what do you mean? I thought God was behind only the good and happy and pleasing things in my life what do you mean his hand is behind this pain and we ask why we have questions now there is a often a working through for those of us most of us who don't have this amazing faith there is for most of us a a period of time where we have to ask those questions and we wrestle And it's difficult to accept and it's difficult to embrace. But is it not the testimony of every one of you that when you get to the other side and you realize that wherever you are, you are there by the will of God, that even in the most painful times, there is not a more comforting truth. Not a single one than to know that the God of the universe still loves you so much and has you in the palm of His hand and is directing your life for your good and for His glory. In Paul's last will and testament here, he pulls no punches with Timothy and he challenges Timothy hard. And he pushes and pushes and pushes. But he is also in the opening and throughout the letter, he is reminding Timothy of the truths that will get him through to the end. And one of them is right simply here in the beginning. Let's remember, Timothy, here I am. I am an apostle. Here I am in prison, chained to the wall by the will of God and according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No mistakes. That is so good. 
You're a Christian trying to understand your life. You can understand this. From God's perspective, what He's doing in your life. No mistakes. No mulligans. No wrong turns. No U-turn. God does whatever He pleases, and it's good, and it's right, and it's perfect, and it may look nuts to you. But God is good. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and according to the gospel, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. To Timothy. To Timothy, my beloved child. There are several things we know about Timothy. Let me just give three things that we know about Timothy. I think it's good we keep in mind that Paul is in prison and he's chained and at the end of his life awaiting execution. And there's probably things about Timothy's life that it is good to remember when you read this letter. Three things. Number one, Timothy is a third generation Christian. We find that in just a couple verses here. Timothy is a third generation Christian. Grandma Lois was a Christian. His mom, Eunice, was a Christian. And now Timothy is a Christian. Third generation. Number two, Timothy's father was absent, at the very least, spiritually. Timothy's father was absent, at the very least, spiritually. When it gives this list of his heritage that we're going to read in just a moment, where it says, this faith that was first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and now in you, He gives this maternal, spiritual heritage. But the glaring thing missing is the Father. And to have a list like this of your heritage in the first century and to not have Dad listed in that heritage, that says a lot about who Dad is and who Dad was. We also know from Acts chapter 16 that he was not a believer. So his spiritual heritage, he heard the gospel from mom and from grandma. But dad, at the very least, spiritually, dad was absent. He was not the son of a godly father who brought him into his inner life and helped to train and raise up Timothy to know and love the Lord. He did not have a godly example in a father. He did not learn in his home what it meant to be a godly man. There was no one worshiping with him. There was no one teaching him. There was no one instructing him that was a man. That model and that example and that those words that should come from a a godly father, Timothy did not have that. And number three, Timothy was, there's lots of different words we could use. He was weak, timid, insecure, fearful. He lacked boldness, lacked confidence. It is very clear when you read Paul's writing to him and you read the words that Paul chooses to write to him and the style in which he writes to him and the things he says to him, it is very clear that timid was something that Timothy experienced. That he didn't have the, 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 the confidence that maybe some around him had. He didn't have the boldness. that some. So he needed somebody like Paul to constantly encourage him and to embolden him and to speak into his life. Now here's what we know as well. If we put these truths together, Timothy is a third generation Christian. Timothy's father was absent, at least spiritually. And Timothy was timid, anxious, and fearful. If you take then or today, if you take a young, inexperienced, uneducated man like Timothy, if you take that kind of a man, and you combine with that that there is not a godly father who is present, he is going to have confidence issues. 
It was true then, and it is true today. You take a young man, as Timothy is, who is inexperienced and who is uneducated and is being thrown into a very serious ministry, and you couple with that the fact that he did not have a godly man who raised him and trained him and brought him up, that young man is going to struggle with confidence. He's going to struggle with security because he did not have, as God intention is and plan is and design is, that you have godly moms and dads who are raising godly children, bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And when fathers especially don't do that, it leaves a mark. And there are consequences that are generational for that. And if you're young Timothy, you are going to have issues. I mean, we all have issues, right? Every one of us has issues. But if you're this young man, this is a recipe for him to be in the position that he is in in his life right now. Because he didn't have a father who loved Christ and who was raising him to love Christ. Christ and teaching him what a godly man was. And then, as every father needs to do for his son, validating him as a man. And so this is true today. And oftentimes, the men who appear the most confident, the young men who appear the most confident, if you can ever get past that with them, you will find out they are a total mess. And completely lack confidence. And it is actually the appearance of confidence. This is merely a projection. Because inside, there was something missing. There was something that is a part of God's design and families and fatherhood and young men that that young man didn't have. Timothy is that guy. Timothy is that guy. And so it's no wonder that Paul speaks to him as he does. So before we move on, sadly, this applies significantly to our day and age. Many of you have these kinds of scars that Timothy had. There are open wounds, maybe, but there are at least scars. Many of you was a mother, it was a father, but it was not the godly home, the gospel-centered home that you would have liked it to have been. And because of that, it has left a mark. It's left a mark on you. It feels like for some of you, I know this, I've talked to many of you, it feels like for many of you, the first 18 years of your life have determined the rest of your life. And your temptation, like Timothy, your temptation will be to have those experiences obscure the cross. You may not see the cross as clearly as you should. You may not see God as clearly as you should. You may not see His Word and His truth as clearly as you should. It will be obscured because you will feel like and think that the experiences that you've had were determinative. And it has settled who you are. Many of you are like Timothy. I mean, to a T. You actually are timid and lack boldness, and lack confidence, and it can be directly linked to the fact that there was not a godly dad who loved you and brought you up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And maybe some of you are men, and you're even a young Christian man. And if you're honest, you just don't know what you're doing. And you don't know how to do this. You don't know how to be a Christian. You don't know how to be a husband. You don't know how to be a father. 
I mean, you read a book, right? You got a book, you read some verses, and you went to a Bible study, and you're back projecting confidence again. But you know, and God knows, that inside there is a struggle. I want you to see how Paul writes to that man. I want you to hear his words and hear the way he says these words to that man. First, he gives his overarching purpose here. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. We're going to need grace. We're going to need mercy. We're going to need peace. Timothy needs it. You need it. I need it. We need mercy. We need mercy. We, we need God to withhold from us what we deserve, and that is God's mercy. You receive God's mercy when God does not give you what you deserve. You receive God's grace when He gives you what you don't deserve. It is a wonderful thing for God to be merciful. It is above and beyond wonderful when He gives you grace. Mercy is you deserve this, but I'm going to withhold that. I'm, not going to, I'm going to be merciful. And grace is not only am I going to not give you what you deserve, I'm going to give you life, what you do not deserve. So I'm going to keep death from you, that's mercy, and I'm going to give you eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life which God has given you. And peace which flows from grace and mercy. This is the life that Paul has. Remember where he is. And this is the life that he wants Timothy to have, that he wants us to have. And so he's writing this letter to Timothy, who is following in Paul's footsteps, pastoring a church. People are deserting him. We know that Hymenaeus, who was excommunicated, and First Timothy, we know he's still around, we're going to find out, still causing problems. In his first letter, Paul helps to direct Timothy, his course, and get him in the right direction. And now is his final plea with Timothy as his life is winding down. This is the last impression that he wants to make on Timothy. And as he writes to him, he calls him. Keep in mind everything we know about Timothy. What does Paul call Timothy? My beloved child. Now, if you know Timothy or if you are Timothy, you already know before Paul says anything else that he is stirring Timothy's heart. When he says, Timothy, he doesn't just say, Timothy, my co-laborer in the gospel. He doesn't say, Timothy, fellow saint. He doesn't say, Timothy, my dear friend. He intentionally sends Timothy a final letter and addresses him and says, son, my beloved child. Saying, Timothy, you belong to me. I am your dad. You are my child. You're not just my child, you are my beloved child. I love you, Timothy. Keep all of that in mind who Paul is, who Timothy is what their relationship is, as we read now. See how this father starts this letter that will encourage and embolden his son. Listen to what he says. First, let's look at verses 3, 4, and 5. We'll take them one at a time and read here. There are three recollections. There are three things that Paul remembers You see, remember, remember, remember. Verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5. Let's start with verse 3. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. So the first thing that Paul says to his son Timothy, to his timid son Timothy, He said, Timothy, my beloved son, I am always thinking about you and I am always praying for you. 
That's what he says. I am always thinking about you, and I am always praying for you. I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Remember where Paul is. Say, Timothy, I'm all day long, I am thinking about you. All day long, I am praying for you. All night long. Timothy, you know where I am. You know I'm not getting eight hours of solid sleep at night. I'm chained to a wall. I sleep for a half hour, 45 minutes, an hour. I wake up. I sleep for a bit. I'm just in and out of consciousness in this dark cell. Timothy, do you understand that night and day, whenever I wake, I am thinking about you, son. I am praying for you, son. And when he does that, And when he remembers and prays for Timothy, what happens? He thanks God. Right? He says, I thank God as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. He says, Timothy, Timothy, here's what's going on. I'm in my cell and I'm thinking about you and praying for you all the time. And Timothy, do you know what happens next? When I think about you, I say, God, thank you for Timothy. You imagine certain people saying things like that to you? I think about you all the time. I pray for you all the time. And you know what I do when I think about you? You know what what it causes me to do? It causes me to thank God. Now, just a side observation. Side note. Notice, too, here how Paul is ending his life. Notice what he has and what he is doing. First, what he has, he has a clear conscience. Would you like to have a clear conscience at the end of your life? He's in the cell and he feels no guilt. He has no secrets. He's confessed everything. He's asked forgiveness for everything. His conscience is clear before God. Many of us don't have a clear conscience right now. Our conscience is condemning us. We're lying and deceiving ourselves and others. Paul, at the end of his life, would you not like to have that? Has a clear conscience. And what is he doing with his life? Praying night and day. Do we realize that prayer is the one thing that we will be able to do until we die? There will come a point in my life and there will come a point in your life if God would choose to take us slowly. There will come a point in all of our lives when we will not be able to do much of anything. There may come a point where we can't feed ourselves, where we can't wash ourselves, where we can't get from point A to point B, where we can't drive a car. There will come a point where we can't read God's Word. But as long as you are alive, God is keeping one thing active. You know what it is? It is your mind. I believe It is active so that until you see Jesus face to face, you can commune with him. So here's Paul chained to a cell. If that isn't time to roll out the pity party, I don't know when it is. I mean, what can he do? You imagine the frustration? He's got people he wants to talk to and people he wants to see and sermons he wants to preach and people who need confronting and he knows what's going on outside these walls and he has absolutely no control. Some of you still think you have control in your life, right? 
And you live your life like you're kind of controlling things and directing things. And sooner or later, God is going to teach you, you have absolutely no control over anything. But some of us are still in the delusion. So we'll enjoy it as long as we can. But Paul, that has ended for him. I mean, God says, I'm going to fetter you to a wall. You're, you're, there's nothing you can do. But what can he do? There's one thing he can do. Here's a man who makes the most of his time. He can pray night and day. Do not underestimate the significance of communion with God. It's what you're going to do forever. And do not underestimate the power of prayer. Prayer is the means that God so often uses to accomplish his will. Do not neglect prayer. There will come a day when it's all you can do. Don't wait until that day. Pray now. This is how Paul goes out of this life. Clear conscience, praying. All the way to his execution. Now back to Timothy. Verse 4. So that was verse 3. He's remembering Timothy night and day. Now verse 4. He gets more specific about what he's remembering about Timothy. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. This is much more specific. Something has happened when Paul and Timothy were together and and there were tears. He doesn't tell us what it is. We can make some, draw some conclusions. Some would say, many commentators would say, that this was tears of of farewell. There's really no indication of that here. And come on. Crying over goodbye. Got to be something better. Something more significant. Now we read about something in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Okay, and he alludes to it here shortly. There was a time in Timothy's life where Paul... Another elders came around him and they put their hands on Timothy and they set him apart for ministry. And you had Paul, the most influential person on the planet. Timothy's spiritual father laying his hands on him and setting him aside for ministry. I think Timothy might have cried. Knowing Paul, knowing Timothy, and this man comes, a spiritual father to Timothy, who has been what Timothy never had, and puts his hands on him, and sets him aside and says, I believe that God has called you to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to pray for you now. He's had moments like that, whether it was that moment or something else. These are the kinds of moments that they have shared. When Paul says that, I'm remembering your tears. In other words, I remember these specific and significant times that we have had together. Do you have people in your life that are very special to you? And you have moments in your life with them that you remember? And maybe there were tears. Maybe it was emotional. Maybe something significant happened that changed you, that transformed you. But there were these profound moments in your life that you shared with other people. That's what Paul is getting at. I'm remembering your tears. And then he says this, as I remember the times we've had together, it causes me to, it's real simple, it causes me to want more time together. This is how he is encouraging and emboldening his son. First, says, I'm remembering you night and day, and I'm also I'm remembering the specific times, these significant times that we've had. I remember your tears. And when I remember your tears, what does it cause in me? I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. You see how personal that is. At the end of his letter, he's going to tell Timothy, do your best to come and see me before winter. We think Paul probably knew something was coming. He knew it was going to grow cold. And he's saying, Timothy, I want to see you so badly. Please try to make it before the winter. This is what Paul is doing. This is how he's starting his letter to his spiritual son. You ever seen those... 
You go to the greeting card section and there's all these different right, categories. Some strange ones. But lots of different categories. And one of them is thinking of you. Incidentally, I always thought that was a strange category. Just call you or text you if I'm thinking of you. Or write a card. But this is what Paul is doing. In verse 3, verse 4, and verse 5, he's telling Timothy simply, I am thinking of you. I'm remembering you. Has it not been significant for you at some points in your life when you just knew that somebody else that wasn't with you, that in certain moments they were thinking about you and they were praying for you? Is that encouraging? Paul says, Timothy, this is where I am. And this is what I'm doing. And in verse 5 he says, I am reminded, even more specifically now, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Let's remember who Timothy is. Let's remember who Paul is. Spiritual father writing to his spiritual son, and Paul is very emphatic about something here. He says, I'm reminded of your faith. He doesn't just say your faith. It's your sincere faith. Then he says it again at the end of that verse. I am sure this faith dwells in you as well. He's assuring Timothy of something. Timothy, you may be a third generation Christian, but it is clear to me that this is not just a faith that you have inherited. It is legit. You are the real deal. You have real Rock solid faith in Jesus Christ. How significant would it be for Timothy, who did not have a godly father, faced with seemingly insurmountable opposition in this church in Ephesus? How significant would it be for him to hear from his spiritual father? To hear from Paul, you are a godly man. Some of you can't imagine the weight that would bring. Timothy, I know your dad was gone. And I know that You came to know Christ through the teaching of your mom and for your grandma. I know there was no one there who was validating you as a man as you grew up. I know that you didn't. I know you've had to learn much the last 10 years. I know it's been a struggle. I know you lack confidence and I know you're timid. I know this is hard for you, Timothy. But Timothy, you are no mama's boy. You are your own man. Every man needs to hear that. Every man. That is exactly what Paul tells Timothy. You know what that means for Timothy? Timothy, you have not followed in the footsteps of your father. The cycle has been broken with you, Timothy. A new legacy begins with you, Timothy. I mean, you could see, Timothy, the impact of generations. I mean, look at your grandmother, look at your mom, look at you, though, now a man. You have children, maybe. You can have grandchildren, maybe. The tides have turned. You are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You have not followed in the footsteps of your father, Timothy. You are following in the footsteps of your spiritual father. And what does Paul say over and over again through these letters? Follow me. Look to me, Timothy. I'm looking to Christ. Let me be your example. Let me model this life for you. Let me help you. Let me train you. Let me bring you up here in your 20s. Let me bring you up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Let me draw alongside of you and let me lead you, Timothy. Paul is telling him okay, what all of us need to hear, men and women, from godly men and godly women, because there is a truth that God is pleased to minister to His saints through other saints. God is pleased. God does this. He ministers to His people by using other godly people. God ministers to 
his people to his children through other children. Okay, we have all different sorts of biological families. Some were wonderful and some were not. And some of you were raised in wonderful ways and some of you were not raised in wonderful ways. But you all have, as believers, a new family. A spiritual family. The kind of family where you have Paul and Timothy who are a father and a son. And that is, and God means to use that family to encourage and to embolden and to lead His people. This is what Paul is in Timothy's life. Paul is saying essentially in these first few verses, it's real simple but profound. Paul is saying, Timothy, I love you and I'm proud of you. And we can't underestimate how powerful that is. He's going to get to the most powerful. And it's not that Paul is for him. It's the God is for him. So don't think that that's the end. But God means to use his people to minister to one another. And there is something powerful that happens for many of us when God uses someone who is godly, who we love and respect and want to imitate for good reasons is behind us and loves us and is proud of us. This is what Paul does for Timothy. But most significantly now, verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul says there's a gift of God that you have, Timothy, and that gift of God is like a flame. And that flame is either going to burn bright and hot or it's going to dim and flicker. And Timothy, your responsibility is to fan this gift. It is to fan this flame so that it would burn brightly. What is this gift of God that he's talking about? It could be faith. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 makes it very clear that our faith is a gift from God, a work that God began in Him, a work that God will bring to completion. But we also have a clue in 1 Timothy 4, 14, if you remember this verse, where Paul says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. I think that's a parallel passage to what we're reading today. And the specific gift that was talked about in 1 Timothy is this gift that God has given, not only a faith that He's given to Timothy, that He's saved Timothy, but He's given him ability to teach and to preach God's people. But He tells Timothy, you have a responsibility here. Do not, as He said in 1 Timothy 4, do not neglect that gift negatively. And now positively, He says here, fan into flame the gift that God has given you. God has given every one of us If you're a believer here today, God has given you a great and precious gift. It is His Son, Jesus Christ. He's not only given you that gift, He's given you the the gift of faith. He's given you the ability to see that gift and to receive that gift and to love that gift. In addition, God has given you gifts because He means to use us to minister to one another. He has given you what are commonly called spiritual gifts. He's given you abilities that come from the Holy Spirit residing within you. And He wants you to use those for His glory and for the good of others. Now, here's the deal. If you don't use those gifts, if you don't exercise your faith, if you don't exercise the gifts and the abilities that God has given you, it's going to be a very dim candlelight. And so he challenges Timothy and says, Timothy, you have a responsibility here. It's like Romans 12:11 says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. And Revelation 3:16, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. God wants us to be burning hot. And if we're going to burn hot, we need to be fanning into flame the gift of God. If I build a fire 
and I don't put wood on the fire, it's going to go out. If I build a fire and I cover the fire and I cut off the air and the oxygen, the fire is going to go out. So you know things about fire. If you want to make the fire burn brighter, what do you do? You fan the flame. You move air through the flame so that it will burn brighter. This is what Paul is saying. He doesn't get specific about how to do it yet, but he's saying you need to fan the flame. Don't just sit there and stare at your candle. Don't just look at it and say, pretty faith, pretty faith. Don't just look there and say, yeah, I've got a gift. I've got an ability. Don't just neglect this gift that you've been given. You need to fan it into flame. Now, why he doesn't get specific? The idea is here, work. Which is, he's saying this over and over again. Take hold of the eternal life which God has given you. Fight the good fight of the faith. Remain in Ephesus. Fan into flame the gift that God has given you. Do not neglect the gift that God has given you. You see his words? Too timid, passive, weak, lacking confidence, Timothy. He says, listen, Timothy, I, I, in today's things, I believe in you. I have seen you. I have seen your life. I hear my counsel as a godly man. Hey, you are a Christian. You are saved. You believe the gospel. Now act like it. And then he brings it home. He's saying, Timothy, forget this, that, that I believe in you, that I love you, that I'm proud of you. What does he say? Fan in the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love. And self-control. God. So Timothy, you've got work to do. All of us, you have work to do. You need to be holy and godly and you need help. You need to be a godly brother or sister or son or daughter and you need help. You need to be a godly mom, dad, you need help. You need to be a godly grandmother, grandfather, you need help. We all are weak. We cannot do this on our own. And we're all fearful. Fearful of failure. So Paul reminds him. He says, Timothy, do you remember what God has done? The Spirit of God is in you. And when you're fearful, Timothy... That is not the Spirit of God. That is you. That is your flesh. That is your sinful nature. Because the Spirit of God is not a spirit of fear. It's a spirit that enables you to have power, to love, and to have self-control. This is how Paul undergirds the instruction that he's given to Timothy. He's saying two things. Timothy, remember, Paul is for you. Timothy, remember, God is for you. Now do what you have been called to do. Now regardless of what kind of family history you have, regardless of how you were brought up, regardless of the examples that you've had in your life, regardless of the kind of family that you maybe didn't have, but you wish you had, you can be sure of this, Christian. You are a part of God's family, and God is your Father, and God has sent His Holy Spirit to dwell within you. You have everything you need according to the riches that are in Christ Jesus. You have everything you could possibly need to do everything that God calls you to do. And we should also be reminded that we are a family. That we are brothers and sisters. We should long and desire to have these kinds of relationships in our church. Because we've got a lot of Timothys, don't we? Men and women. We've got a lot of Timothys who, whose history has left a mark on them. And who have scars. And who feel like there's boxes that they can't get out of. And feel like there's lines that they can't cross. And water that they can't stay above. 
We have these people. And we need relationships that come from us understanding that we have a responsibility to one another, to love one another the way Paul loved Timothy. When we come into God's family, we should understand that we have here, we have sons and we have daughters. We have mothers and we have fathers. We have grandmothers and we have grandfathers. Some of you didn't have a father. Some of you didn't have a mother. And by God's grace, you will find a father here. You'll find a mother here. Some of you didn't have that heritage. You didn't have a grandmother. You didn't have a grandfather. And by God's grace, you will find that grandmother and that grandfather here. Some of you didn't have children. You didn't have sons and you didn't have daughters and you wanted sons and you wanted daughters. And there are Timothys all around you. And that son is here and that daughter is here. We have families and then we have our family of faith. And we are called to love one another. Now, honestly, I don't know what else to do to foster that kind of a community than to pray for it. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. But it is the prayer of your pastors that God would bring us together as that kind of a family. It has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. No one comes into a church and says, you know, I really just, I wish I had a, a, a father figure in my life. I didn't. And I'd like to go around and ask if there's any godly men who would be willing to pour into my life. Now, that guy's not going to do that. And unfortunately and usually the godly man who does have something to offer and does something, have something to give, doesn't take the time, doesn't see with the spiritual eyes, doesn't get to know, doesn't get to love, doesn't get to pray for those who are younger than him in the faith. And the same is true often for gals in the church. And there's no program for it. Well, fill out these forms and we'll pair you up. What a disaster. This is your mom now. This is your dad. Meet your granddaughter. It's just... We don't know how else to foster that than to preach the gospel and to pray that God would knit us together as that family. That we would be a people who are opening our eyes and not making assumptions about people who are different than us, but who are seeking to know one another and who are seeking to love one another, who are seeking to be known by one another, who are seeking to be loved by one another. Because some of you may be like Timothy, and you need somebody like a Paul to come alongside you and say, I see that your faith is sincere, and I love you. I'm proud of you. God's grace, mercy, and peace be with you. It is extraordinary means that God means to use in your life for your good and for His glory. But the hope is... If that never comes, if that never comes, you have Christ. And you have God as your heavenly Father, who, if you are a believer, is planning to look at you one day and say, welcome. And he's going to call you, my son or my daughter. He's going to tell you, I love you and I'm proud of you. Which I, I can't even, I don't even get that. Because God will say to us, come here, son, come here, daughter, you with whom I am well pleased. Every believer hears that when they see Christ face to face. Does it not take the gospel just to believe that? Let me pray. And then we'll take communion together as a family. If you're visiting and want to know how we do communion, it's in the bulletin you got on your way in. And after I pray, let's remember together what happened on that cross through the death of Jesus Christ that has reconciled us to our Heavenly Father. Our Father in Heaven, we come before You today with happy hearts, filled with joy because You've been so good to us. God, I pray that if if there are people here today who are 
who are reaching for this peace that we've talked about that's just seemed elusive their whole life and they are reaching for contentment and reaching for love. God, I pray that you would make it so stark to them right now the, the wrong ways to go and the right way to go. That they would see that in you is grace and mercy and peace and the promise of finding that anywhere else is a bold-faced lie from Satan. That they would turn from the things of this world, that they would turn from the philosophies of this world, that they would turn from the worldviews of this world, and they would turn to you. That they would turn to your word. That you would open their eyes now and open their ears now to see and to hear the good news of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done. For those of us who are believers who take this meal together now God make it mean something in our hearts don't let it be routine or trivial to us but let it be significant as we eat this bread and drink this juice as a symbol of your body and blood Jesus Christ we pray these things in your name Amen Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.